a sermon series called Don't Miss This from the book of John. We're at a point now where Jesus is being arrested and about to go to the cross. And I thought what maybe we would do today is is build on a little bit of what Pastor Dave taught on last week, the, the sovereignty of God, the control of Christ, and also look forward to what's coming, what the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ really means from a a high-level view, um, not just a bird's-eye view, but from God's throne's view. To step back, take a little breather, reset ourselves, and try to figure out where we're at, where we're going, and what God is up to in all of this. So let me start by asking you a question. How many of you remember the early 70s? Wow, i got a lot of old people here. Um, Man, just from 70 to 75, some terrible things happened. The Beatles broke up. Um, Microsoft started. Uh, sharks started eating people on the big screen. Our religion was in crisis, right? Roe v. Wade happened. Stairway to Heaven became more popular than the Bible. The Force was awakened. All sorts of things going on. We were in the middle of a Cold War with Russia. Uh, nuclear tensions were escalating everywhere. The Vietnam War was imploding. Our country was in turmoil. We actually had a president who committed a crime and resigned. We had an oil crisis. We had pollution problems. We had runaway inflation. Countless other horrors were introduced to us during that period, like lava lamps, liposuction, and light beer. Remember that? Um, And yet in that time... I remember very well, one of my favorite albums was released by a band called Supertramp, and this was the cover. Crisis? What crisis? It's a post uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, apocalyptic, thank you, view of the world with everything falling apart, and here's a guy sitting back having his iced tea, catching some rays, saying, crisis, what crisis? Well, we can look at our situation today, Right? We have global struggles that we're all well aware of with terrorism and major things going on now with the Catholic Church and false teachers popping up everywhere in our church. We've got a national crisis, multiple crises in our government, an opioid crisis, a suicide problem, school shooters, free speech under attack, and I read in the Bleacher Report where the bills will go 0-16 this year. Um, Personal stresses, right? Summer's coming to an end. Some going back to school. Winter's coming. I know, I didn't mean it. Our church is all torn up. Our pastor is trying to live on one lung. Uh, Things are, are difficult, and for many of you, I know some of your struggles. Things are personally hard right now. And you're sitting here in the middle of a crisis saying, God, what are you up to? Well, I think if Jesus could answer something today, he would use the words from an author and cartoonist named Ashley Brilliant, who once said, relax, enjoy the crisis. How did Jesus do that? He did it and would do it and will do it and continues to do it through 15 verses in Matthew 13. 15 verses where Jesus sums up the entire Bible and all of human history. 15 verses where Jesus tells his disciple, look, I'm going to take you from confusion and despair to rejoicing and glory. So we're going to look at Matthew 13 today. It's um, often referred to as the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And there's good reason for going here. I don't know if uh, back in the 1970s any of you saw the movie Oh God with George Burns. 
Well, John Denver gets out of the shower, he's got his towel on, he gets in the mirror, and he's looking at himself, and next to him he sees George Burns, who's supposedly God. And he tells him that he's God, and he doesn't believe him, so he does a miracle there in the bathroom, and then John Denver gets really scared. And he says, what should I do? And George Burns says, shave. He says, what do you mean, shave? He goes, sometimes when you don't know what to do, do what you do know what to do. You know how to shave, shave. And John Denver says, are you sure? And George Burns said, did I do a good job on the Grand Canyon? Like, am I in control or not? So here we are at a point in life where we're not sure of some things going on. But we are sure of Matthew 13 because Jesus gave it to us. So here you could say that the conditions could be arguably worse 2,000 years ago for the disciples than they are today for us. But Jesus goes and stands in a boat and speaks to a multitude of people. And he gives them this parable. And if you look at the parable, it's it's a, a parable that just shows, look, relax, God's in control, his plan's on schedule, the kingdom is intact. So let's look at Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, I could give you all sorts of interpretations of this if I wanted to, but the only one I'm allowed to give you is the one that Jesus gives, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds stand for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus is putting everything into perspective here. He's helping his disciples to see things the way they actually are, not the way they might be appearing to them. He's showing them who's in control, and he's showing them that some of the things you're dwelling on and focused on right now are not that important. In the big scheme of things, they really aren't. He says, stop and take a look for God's guiding hand in everything. Now, did Jesus ever sin? No. So did he ever tell a lie? No. So is this parable true? Yes. Do we believe it? Will we stake our lives on it? Or is it just one of those nice stories in the Bible? He's really challenging us to say, folks, step back and take a look at what I'm doing. Take a look at the plan 
that is unfolding before you. We tend to doubt this plan sometimes. Like maybe sending a Savior was God's plan B. Well, plan A didn't work because Adam and Eve took of the fruits, so we've got to throw some other plan into motion now. Well, no, God doesn't try things and they don't work. That's not how it goes. If plan A failed, then who's to say plan B, plan C, plan D won't fail? There aren't any other plans. There was one plan from the beginning. We're in the middle of it now. It won't fail. It will succeed. It's right on track. And God's going to see that it gets accomplished. Unwaveringly, it will stay on course. So in this one parable, he sums it up. The beginning, the end, and what happens in between. So let's take a look at it. The first, the first part of it is there's, t- the, well, I read the parable already, the, the perspective I just told you about. I should look at my own slides. Um, uh, I missed one. Okay, uh, this is what happens when you do slides late at night. Let's start here where there's two planters. The first one is Christ. It tells us in verse 24 and 37, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. It's interesting. First of all, you have to understand he plants with a purpose. Why did the chicken cross the road? There was a purpose in it. Why does a farmer wear red suspenders? To hold his pants up. There's a purpose in it. That was for the kids, okay? Um, Why does a farmer plant seed? He wants a crop. If he wants corn, what does he plant? If he wants wheat, what does he plant? This is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, planting something with a particular harvest in mind. He has an end goal. He knows what he's after. This is something we can overlook that we shouldn't miss. There's another thing that we shouldn't miss either is the fact that it's his field. Right? He's planting in his field. Sometimes we think that Satan owns the world. Genesis 14 says that God most high is the possessor of heaven and earth. Acts 17, Paul saying that God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Satan might be the God of this world and he might have influence over the world, but he doesn't own it. No one gave him the deed. That's a false notion. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He's the creator and the title holder to this world. It's his. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. He's always been Lord over the earth at all times. And he started this plan with an eternal goal in mind. He knew what he was doing. He threw it into motion. Acts 15, 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. This was a plan from the foundation of the world, a plan that has not changed. So the field is his, and he's doing what pleases him in it. And what he does is he plants good seed, it says in verse 38. And it tells us that the good seed are the people of the kingdom of God. It's us. It's the people who have come to believe. He plants us. He puts us into the kingdom. He saves the souls of men, makes them sons and daughters of the kingdom, and we now become incorruptible seed. Peter tells us in 1 Peter one twenty three, You have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. A seed that was corrupted and destroyed in Adam. A seed that would have grown to be a weed. Jesus takes it and turns it to become an incorruptible seed. 
Something that won't spoil, something that won't be made rotten, something that won't degenerate. And in this parable, something that won't war against Christ. We are still in the war. We just change sides because of what Christ did for us. The wheat is genuinely human but incorruptible. We are like Jesus' studio audience plants. Puts one here, one there, one there, one there, so he can call on them whenever he wants to accomplish his purposes. You know how that works, right? Well, there's another planter. And this guy doesn't plant the people that Jesus wants. He plants the audience hecklers, the ones that will oppose him, the ones that will get in his way and try to thwart his plan. So in verse 38, we're told the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. He's planting in opposition. He's a corrupt adversary. He is the evil one. He's a deliberate enemy. He declared war on Christ when he started planting corruptible seed. Remember, he's not at war with us. He's at war with Christ. He hates Christ. And so he'll do all he can to diminish Christ and to thwart this plan of Christ which can't be thwarted. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right? There are spiritual forces in this world that get us to fight with each other because that's what Satan wants to do to destroy the image of God's kingdom is to get us to bite and devour one another. He roams about as a lion seeking to destroy us. But understand this. These are not two competing kingdoms. This is not the kingdom of the evil one and the kingdom of God and who's going to win. Right? It's not that at all. Hell is not a kingdom. Satan is going to be punished there too for all eternity. He's a fallen angel. His powers are limited by Christ. Any of you have mom ever say to you, I brought you into this world and I can take you out? Well, Jesus brought Satan into this world and he can take him out at any time. He has no chance of winning. He's already the defeated foe. Jesus and Satan are not in the same zip code. It's the creator of the universe, God Almighty, and a created fallen angel. It's not an even battle. And yet he still wants to fight. He still wants to come after Christ. So what does he do? He plants corruption. He takes the corruptible seed, which is all of the fallen human race in Adam, and he corrupts it further. He does anything he can by any means to remove the glory of Christ in this world. And now he doesn't spawn his own seed. He corrupts the seed that's already planted. You probably heard the time when Satan said that he was like the Most High and he could do anything God could do. And God said, oh, yeah, well, let's start by creating humans. Satan said, okay, you're on. So he goes and grabs some dirt, and God says, what are you doing? He goes, I'm making a human. And God says, get your own dirt. He's not equal to God. These are not his seed in that sense. He takes a seed that's been planted and corrupts it further. The other thing after the planters is that there's a warning here that there is a purging coming. There is a harvest. In verse 39b, it says, The harvest is the end of the age. The harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out his kingdom and everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them in the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I once talked to a farmer about this passage, and he said what these people who Jesus was talking to would have understood at this time is the weed that grows is probably called darnel. 
it looks like wheat. You can't tell the difference. They grow together, and for someone to go and try to harvest the darnel, they might actually harvest some wheat. The roots get intertwined. They would definitely damage it. So Jesus said, no, don't try to tear up this darnel. But the thing about the darnel is the seed is poisonous. If you actually ate a darnel seed, you would get nauseous and you would get headaches. It's not good. It's a very bad seed. And yet it grows among us. And Jesus said, don't worry. My angels know which is which. They will be able to root them out. It's not your job. Now, the elders of the church are charged with taking care of the flock and watching for wolves that might come in and ravage them. So there is a sense in which we need to be spiritually aware and astute and protect against these things that will come and choke out God's people. Bottom line, though, Jesus is saying, let God and the angels deal with this. All right? It's not your task. But this purging will come. And this Darnell, these weeds, will be bundled together and thrown into a fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what Jesus always does with these parables is he draws all of his listeners either closer to heaven or closer to hell. There's no neutral hearing of a parable. For those who believe, the parable will bring great blessing and comfort. At the same time, the unbelievers will hear a message of judgment and warning. Malachi 4.5 says the day of the Lord is going to be great and dreadful. Great for some people, dreadful for others. This parable can be encouraging or it can be frightening, depending upon where you're at today listening to it. God's word is designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's what he does. But there's a stern warning here that those who don't believe will be uprooted, bundled together, punished, Conscious, eternal banishment. Stern warning for people who don't believe. So he warns the scoffer, but he also encourages the believer in verse 43 with the paradise. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12.3 prophesied this as well. It said, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In Hebrews 2, the author says that Christ's end goal goal was to bring many sons to glory. To bring us into this glory, to bring us into this kingdom, to bring us into this moment where we see Christ. Where we see the kingdom revealed. He plants these seeds for this glory. The right seed for what he intends to harvest. He wants to harvest a crop of people who will show forth his brilliance in the kingdom. Those in Christ will shine, and we'll see it in all of its splendor. A pastor of mine, Reed Ferguson, once said this about this passage. Beloved, whatever the struggle is, however difficult it is, however it seems that the world is making its progression... However weak and beggarly at times the church seems to be, he has intended that when it is all done, he will point to those who are redeemed, and he will say, this is the majesty, this is the power that I demonstrated when I wanted everyone to know the riches and the glory of my grace. He will not fail. That is his end. And because he has set that end in place, we don't tremble in the midst of knowing that we grow up in the middle of a field that is surrounded with tares. 
Amen? There is a day coming, I thought of it as we sang this morning, when all things will be consummated, all of our enemies, including death and sin, Satan himself will be conquered. Every tear will be wiped away. Every question will be answered. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, At that time, Jesus will take the kingdom and turn it over to his Father, that God may be all in all. And at that moment, we won't be looking through a glass darkly. We will see the front of the tapestry. And we will understand every car accident and every new car and every job loss and every promotion and every miscarriage and every set of triplets born. The whole thing will make sense. We will see how God has worked all things together for his glory. And yet, we also will know at that moment that every single thing that did happen, happened so the glory of that moment could be maximized. There will be no more greater glory in the universe ever than that moment. And we will stand there, shining forth as the sun, reflecting the brilliance of our Christ as he illuminates the universe And his father said, this is my son in whom I am forever well pleased. Show us your glory. And here's the amazing thing. In John John 17, when Jesus prays, he says, Father, that glory, I want to share it with my people. The glory that I had with you before the world was, I want them to have it as well as part of their inheritance. What were you worried about coming in here today? Can you imagine that moment? Are the midterm elections important right now? No. He says, stay here. Show the world Christ, that they may know his glory. A couple practicals to take away from this. Life is hard at times. Tribulation was promised by Christ. He didn't say we would have a bed of roses. He promised us a thorn garden. It was going to be tough. And so Peter challenges us in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. He says, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Knowing this, how should we live our lives? I think the first thing that Jesus is saying is be patient. The separation time will come. Don't grow weary. There is a day, there is an hour, a month, a year when Christ will send his angels out. And they will reap. To us it seems like forever. But to God a a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He sees a different time scale than we do. Eve was promised in the garden that one day a child would rise up and that child would crush the head of Satan. And when Cain was born, she raised him up and said, I have gotten the man. She thought that was the Savior. We get impatient. God's plan had a long way to go yet before Christ came through her loins. James and John, God rained down fire on those Samaritans, right? Now, Lord, what about the Crusades? People won't convert, we'll kill them. How many times do we take things in our own hands trying to make God's timetable work on our schedule? But Habakkuk 2.3 says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. 
It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it certainly will come. It will not delay. We need to trust in God's plan and in God's schedule. We need to keep alert, and we need to look for God in every situation. He's always working. He's always at work. It's so hard not to focus on man, but to keep our focus on God. Cal Thomas once said that every morning I get up, I have the Washington Post in one hand and the Bible in the other because I want to know what both sides are up to. Maybe we should take a little lesson from that and say let's at least read our Bible as much as we watch the news or surf the web. Try to find a balance there. We need to be patient. We need to be productive. God made it so we can still grow right where we're at. Adam and Eve fell terribly, and yet God still told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah, saved by God's grace, was given a whole new world, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God caused his people to be carried into captivity in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah 29, this is what he tells them to do while they're in captivity. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to your husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. In the midst of a difficult time, in captivity, surrounded by terror, surrounded by evil, he says, bloom where you're planted. Don't diminish, but increase. Continue to increase. I'm not talking about the Duggars or the Rutans where you just keep having a whole bunch of kids. That's fine if you want to do that. I'm talking about increase in your own personal relationship with Christ, in your influence, in your sphere around you. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't be distracted by circumstances. Don't be caught up in all the world's problems. Don't shrivel up and, and, and hide in a shell someplace. But live your life. Continue to learn. Continue to grow. Continue to flourish. Increase the impact you have on other people. That's what he's called us to do. And of course, you know what he tells the people of Israel in Babylonian captivity, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. How many times have we memorized that and say it out loud as a congregation, right? Do we believe it? Is this what God has for his people, even in the worst of times, even in the deepest of captivities? Does he still want us to bloom? Does he still have a plan for us to prosper? Theodore Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Don't let the weeds choke you out. Abide in Christ and allow him to continue to work through you to bear fruit. I don't know what that might mean for you, for me. Maybe you need to change jobs. Maybe you need to run for office. Maybe you need to volunteer compass care. Maybe you need to check yourself into rehab. Mend a relationship. What is he calling you to do here so that you can bear more fruit, so that you can increase? How can you be 
optimistic and trust God to make the most of your difficult situation. A lot of you are sending kids off to college right now and you're worried about how they're going to survive. Will it be sex, drugs, rock and roll, or will they at least keep their faith and maybe go to church every now and then? Well, is that the right attitude? What do you think Moses' mom felt when she took Moses and put him in a basket and put him in the Nile? She knew he could have drowned. She knew crocodiles could have eaten him. No, she sends his brothers and sisters out and said, go watch him. This is going to be great. Watch what God will do in this situation. How often do we have that attitude towards sending our kids out? (laughs) This is going to be great. They're going to flourish. They're going to grow. They're going to prosper, right? Don't shrivel, but blossom, bloom. Watching an episode of MASH years ago, and everybody was moaning and complaining because it was Christmas time, and they were away from their families. Colonel Potter gathers everybody together, and he says, I've learned something a long time ago. If you're not where you're at, you're nowhere. Make the most of where you're at right now in the situation you're in. The church always grew and expanded during the hard times, not during the easy times. It's been said people are like tea bags. You don't know how strong they are or what they're made of until you put them in the hot water. That's where we tend to, to show the world what we're really made of, what we're really like. And it's all about attitude. I know you've all heard Chuck Swindoll said that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. Christ is saying, don't worry. It's under control. Be patient. Grow where you're planted. Be productive. But then also, be propagating. Propagate some seeds. Spread the gospel. Not only produce good fruit, but bloom. Spread some seed around. Make some disciples. The Great Commission is still in effect, you know. We're supposed to go out and make disciples, not excuses. People are watching us. Is it real? Is your faith real? Do you really have a Savior who's changed your life and who's called you to eternal glory? Do you really have peace and confidence in the security that I'm lacking? And if you do, how do I find it? But but you don't know my situation, Dan. I'm, I'm treading water. I'm barely hanging in there. I can't bloom. I can't spread. I can't do anything right now. Well, I shared this with you some point in a Sunday school class or someplace before, but D.L. Moody once said he was deeply impacted by a painting that he saw that was something like this. There was a great shipwreck, and the ship was anchored in some rocks, And the only thing that stayed above the water was the bow of the ship that had this huge wooden cross. And this one lady was clinging to the cross. And D.L. Moody was like, I have to remember in the midst of the storms, when the waves are pounding, when everything is horrible, that I have to cling to the cross, that I'm secure. I have to stay there. That's where my only hope, my only salvation is. And years later, when he was going through another particular difficult time in his life, he wanted to find this painting again. And he found it was changed. And it changed to look something like this. This is a bad Photoshop version for me. But do you see the hand coming out of the water? The artist had then realized, what am I worried about? I'm secure in Christ. My job is to reach out and pull others to the cross to save them as well. D.L. Moody said it changed his life when he stopped just fearing and clinging all the time 
to where he sensed his security and his strength and knew that he could pull people there as well and help save others. God used them to bring revival to England and to America. See, the church age is for evangelism now. It's not for judgment. There's an enemy all around us that's in trouble. And they need our gospel. But like Peter walking on the water, we have to stay focused on Christ. We can't lose our perspective or we'll begin to drown ourselves. We need to cling to Christ. We need to cling to each other. We need to know we're secure in the cross. And we need to pull others to the only one that can save their soul. Let me wrap this up with a promise. Jesus hung on a cross between two corrupted seeds planted in the ground. They looked alike. They shared Adam's sin, his corruption. They both deserved the punishment they were getting and eternal punishment. But one became incorruptible. One was granted paradise. How? By believing in Jesus. As John 3 told us, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes on him may have eternal life. He looked at Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned that corruptible seed into an incorruptible seed. And that man's destiny was no longer to be gathered by the angels and thrown into the burning furnace, but it was now to spend eternity in the paradise of God's glory. You know what else the farmer told me? There is one way you can tell the difference between wheat and darnel, and that's when it's fully mature, the head of the wheat will bow down, and the darnel will stand up straight in defiance of its maker. That's what happened on the cross here. One yielded, one bowed, one submitted to the king of kings, and the other defied to the very end. This promise is even good news for the weeds. Christ is still taking corruptible seed and making it incorruptible. And so he ends the parable by saying, whoever has ears, let him hear. Listen to the message today. Today's the day you need to bow your head before the King of Kings if you've never done it before. The end of the age could happen at any moment. We don't know. But it's better to surrender now than to surrender at the angel's sickle when he comes for the harvest. Jesus is not alarmed by all that's going on. He's not alarmed by the enemy's attacks. He knows that there's evil surrounding us, that the roots are intertwined with ours, that we're being choked in so many ways. You see the world dominating and the church diminishing. He knows there's hurt and confusion everywhere. But he also knows his father's in control. It's impossible for his purposes to be thwarted, that he's working all things together for the good. He's working all things according to his plan that a harvest day is coming and someday everything will turn out just fine for those who are his seed. Now, the 70s may be happening all over again in a different way, but let me tell you this history will not always repeat itself. The ruler of history is moving it toward a certain end. The enemy will not have his way. The world will not overcome. The church will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ will never leave his crop unattended. 
or let the weeds choke it out. But he will work with his, with his father to complete this grand plan right on schedule. It will never falter. It will give its intended yield. So don't fear. Don't be discouraged. When you're surrounded on every side, look up. The top is always open. Our God has things under control, and he's going to do just what he promised 2,000 years ago he would do. He's going to expose every darkness. He's going to defeat every, every enemy, and he's going to fix every broken thing in this universe. But until then, well, let's keep working together as we watch his plan unfold, knowing that the kingdom is intact and everything is on schedule. And let's try to relax and enjoy the crisis, okay? Let's pray. Father, how often we tend to wrestle control away from you and take things into our own hands. And we've seen time and time again when we do, we fail. And yet, Lord, as frail as we are, you still have chosen us to be your presence in this world, to be your hands and your mouth and your feet, to go forth and bear fruit and show others the glory of this gospel. Father, may we focus on that glorious day when we will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom. And may we be excited about dragging others to that event, about always and everywhere keeping you in that moment at the forefront of our minds when we struggle with the hard things we're struggling with. I pray, Lord, you would continue to keep this church focused there and to help us to always default to you, to always look to you, to praise you, and to honor you, and to look and listen for what it is that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for your sure plan and your steady and guiding hand that is on our lives. May we yield to it for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.